0: When Christ ascended, he gave his people a mission, to make disciples, by baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. The goal of our discipleship is to be mature in Christ, not be swayed by every wind of doctrine, but to find stability on the foundation of Christ. Stability isn't accidental. Maturity doesn't just happen. We don't drift towards holiness, we drift away from it. However, Christ's command remains the same. We are called to be and make disciples of Christ. But what does it mean to be a disciple? Is there a class I'm supposed to teach? Where do we learn about being a disciple? What does maturity look like? Are we supposed to be clones of each other who look, think, and act exactly the same? this Advent season, we will consider the implications of the Incarnation and how it applies to making disciples. We'll be cutting through the confusion, unscrambling the pieces, and demystifying discipleship.
1: Well, good morning again. If we haven't met, my name is Mike, I'm the lead pastor here, and as you just saw in that video, we're going to be taking a look over the next few weeks together at what discipleship is, what it looks like, what it entails, and all the implications for us. Because if that's what Jesus has commanded us to do, then we need to figure out what it is that Jesus is talking about, what it is He's commanding us to do, and then how we go about pursuing that. Now, usually I have a text of Scripture that I walk through, and we just go verse by verse through this. Today, my my text is the Bible. So hopefully you have your Bibles. We're going to be looking at a lot of different passages. If you don't want to write all these down, I'd encourage you, you can go to my blog and just follow along page by page, verse by verse, line by line through what I'm going to be talking about here. If you just go to pastormikesmusings.com, you'll be taken to that webpage so you don't have to actually take notes. I'll also be putting all the verses on the screen up here as we walk through them all because we're going to be taking a look at what God's plan has been throughout all of human history. And as I was thinking about this this week, one of the realities I was thinking of is is the fact that we as humans are hardwired to want to belong to something much bigger than ourselves. I was talking to a friend recently about what makes a story epic, and so I texted him this week and asked him what he means by that. He said it's something that stirs your soul, something that captures your imagination, it gives you a sense of longing for something bigger than yourself. Think of the appeal of Lord of the Rings or Narnia or the Marvel movies that have come out, which are far better than any of the DC movies that have come out. But I think, I think the reality is all of us long for this, and civilizations since the dawn of time have written and created stories to help us understand our place in this world. Uh, think of the story of Beowulf where humans can, can interact with each other. Or the epic of Gilgamesh that talks about this, this uh, crazy flood story. Uh, the Jews, the nation of Israel, had Noah and his ark. The crossing of the Red Sea across dry ground as, as the beginning point of their civilization. You have Rome with the myth of the raising of two twins by wolves. We as Americans have the story of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. One if by land, two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be. This past week, I was at a conference in Denver where I ran into a friend of mine from seminary who's planning to pursue Ph.D. work in New Zealand, which you can also just call Middle Earth. As soon as I heard him say that, that's what I said, is, dude, you're going to Middle Earth. And he said, that's why I want to go. See, all of us long to be a part of something that's much bigger than ourselves, But I think we often miss or neglect or underemphasize the fact that that being a part of something bigger than ourselves, being a part of an epic reality, is exactly what God has invited us into. However, this invitation is into something much more epic than a fantasy story that is full of talking animals, because God's story is true, and it allows us to get caught up in the most epic story that is taking place around us every moment of every day. However, we need to retune our minds to start thinking better so we can start seeing better and understanding what is taking place around us all the time. We need a Gandalf who can rouse us from our complacency, jump off the couch, and like Bilbo, go running off and tell everyone that I'm going on an adventure. Now, as I said, we're going to be reading a lot of different texts today, but I want to spend time at the beginning reading from Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. It's on page 579 of the Pew Bibles. Once you get it, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together and see just what kind of adventure God has called us to. Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce on godliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. As you're seated, I invite you to once again, please pray with me. God, I thank You that You, as the great storyteller, have invited us into Your story. All of us have, have a significant part to play, a significant role to carry out, and I pray for all of us that we would be found faithful of what You have called us to do and be, and that is making and maturing disciples of You. I pray that as we dig into this new series together, that we would be reminded and encouraged to more accurately and faithfully follow You in all the areas of our life. I thank you that you have, have given us specific commands that we are to pursue, specific ways that we are to live, and I pray that we would continue looking for opportunities to do good works to each other. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, I just want to reiterate, this we're going to be covering a lot of information, so you don't have to write it all down. If you want to, go find it on my blog. You can do that because we're going to be looking at a bunch of different texts together. So, in order to look at what we're going to be studying and what it is to uh, define disciple, we need to begin like, kind of taking a step back and looking at what is God's purpose throughout all of human history. Now, maybe you've heard some, some descriptions of like how you put the Bible together in, in some different ways. Like one of the ones that I have often heard and I think is a helpful summary is creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation. Another example I've heard is the revealing of God's eternal plan. Another one is the establishment of God's people. One of uh, my most favorite books that I've read on this topic described it as the establishment of the kingdom of God, which is defined as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. I've shared this idea before, but if you want to just use alliteration, you can do God's people in God's place under God's position. So, God ruling and blessing His people. Now, if you remember a couple of years ago now, we studied the book of 1 Peter together, which is a helpful and accurate reminder of how we are commanded to live as holy exiles, remembering that our kingdom is not of this world. We are citizens of a new country where Jesus sits on His throne, and the best part is you don't have a vote, nor can He ever be outvoted. So, if you think about this idea, God's people, God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people are those who are seeking to worship or obey God in every facet of their lives. That is, imaging Him and obeying His mandates to both fill and subdue the earth. So, God's people and God's place. God's place is everything, there's no limit. Since God created everything, there is nothing outside of His realm. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian, a Dutch theologian writing in the 19th century said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Like if you've ever, if you've ever played the game of, of mine as you're growing up, like that is mine and then you fight with it, Jesus is going to win every single time He plays that. The third place, so we've seen God's people in God's place and then positionally under God's rule and blessing. That comes about as His people, that is the church, preach... And practically live out the gospel in every area of their lives. So we see God's purpose from eternity past was to have a people who demonstrate Him by what they say, their speech, and how they live, which is distinct or different from the world around them. But let's look at a few passages to see what that actually looks like. We read this one together Titus 2 11 through 14. A few notes. It begins by saying, The grace of God appeared. This is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings about salvation for all people. This salvation, this gift, this gospel message that we believe and preach and proclaim on a regular basis here is accessible to anybody, is available to everyone. And then when we are saved, it leads us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And then after we're doing these, pursuing these attributes, it leads to us anxiously waiting for Jesus to finally come back. Now, it also goes on. He who gave himself, that is, the atonement. He died on the cross on our behalf to redeem us from all, unlo- all lawlessness and purify for himself, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So this purifying idea is one we've talked about a lot when we were looking at Ephesians together. This is holiness, this is sanctification, which is manifested by being zealous for good works. So if you are purified, if you are holy, if you are becoming sanctified, you are going to be zealous for good works. That means that those who are saved should be looking for every opportunity you have to do good works. So are you today, are you zealous, working your hardest? To do good works. Another example we see of, of what God's plan in human history is, is, is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It's on page 572 of those Pew Bibles. Here, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here we see, we, we used to be in, in this place, this domain of darkness. But then when Jesus came, when He saved us, He delivered us. And when we put our trust, our faith, our hope in Him, we are then transferred from the domain of darkness into this brand new kingdom of the beloved Son. Now, we are called to live out good works. We're called to live out the gospel. And we are actually called and commanded to do that together in community during this present age. But this isn't just a New Testament idea. We'll see another picture of this in the Old Testament in just a second. I think a good way of summarizing what we see here in Colossians chapter 1 is with this diagram. Now, a lot of the ideas I'm going to be talking about are from like 20 years of life and about 20 different books that I have read on discipleship over the years, which is why this is going to be a fire hose. If you want to see this information distilled down into a more easily accessible format, I've got a couple books for you. The first is called The Trellis and the Vine, which we have in our library. It's a good brief summary of what does it mean for us to actually practically live out and imbibe the truths that we're going to be looking at during this sermon series together. The second one is called The Vine Project, and this one is not yet in the library. I think I might have an extra one for you, Cindy Mather, wherever you are. So I'll drop it off the library sometime later today. This one is the more practical implementation of the first one, the trellis and the vine. Either one of them would be worth reading, but if you want a little cheater version, The Vine Project has a two-page summary of that entire book. So even those of you who are not readers, I believe you can do two pages. Reach out to me, I can send you an electronic copy of that one. But all of this idea is where all of uh, those books is where I'm going to be getting these ideas over these next few weeks together. So what we see in Colossians 1 is we begin here at the bottom in this domain of darkness where we are separated from God, where we want nothing to do with Him, where in fact in in Romans and Ephesians we saw that we are actually opposed, we are against, we are fighting against who God is and what He has called us to be. Then we have this huge cross right in the middle. That is when Jesus comes, He has saved us and then transfers us from here up into the kingdom of the Son where someday we will look forward anxiously to where we will be sitting around the throne, a redeemed people gathered around the risen Christ. That's where we're going. What we're looking at over these next few weeks together is this in-between time. What does it look like for us to live this side of the cross, but not yet reaching that final point of glory? Now, I think another picture of this we see in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 29. Many of you know Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Some of you might even have that cross-stitched in your houses. But before that, in Jeremiah 29, he is speaking to a people who are in exile, those who were sent away from their homeland, which is actually a good description of those of us who are in Christ today. Many times we we treat this world as our home and act like we we don't have anything else to live for. But while we live in this in-between time, look at the way Jeremiah, while God speaking through Jeremiah, commands his people to live. So Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 5, if you want to look in the Pew Bible, it's on page 382. He says, "...build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease." but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Notice how normal this is. There's nothing extraordinary about what is taking place. All God's people are commanded to do is live a holy life in the normal everyday life that everyone is doing. We'll be doing the same things as everybody else, but we'll have a different focus, aim, and goal. And we see that we're supposed to be actively looking for ways that we can be a blessing to our communities. Now, I don't have time to dig into this to now, but I'll, uh, right now, but I'll talk about it some during sermon scraps tomorrow. That is, how do we pursue the blessing of our community when the culture emphasizes the opposite of what we've been called to do and be and then uh, fights back against our attempts to be a blessing and, and calls them intolerance? Again, separate and bigger issue than I have time for, but I think it does warrant a conversation. So, before we get to discipleship, with these ideas in mind, I think we need to understand what a disciple is. So let's begin by defining what a disciple is before we get to the activity of discipleship or ling, the verbal form of that. So the first question we need to ask, we've seen God's purpose in human history is to redeem a people for Himself who are gathered around His throne, God's people in God's place, serving under God's rule and reign. But then we see people who are called to be disciples. One example we see of this is, is in the… well, there's a lot of examples in, this, in the Gospels. One of them is Luke 6.40, where Jesus is talking about a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So, at its most basic level, we see in Luke 6.40, fully trained, there is this idea or this connotation of to be a disciple is to be a learner. Remember, we saw this in Ephesians chapter 4.20. Paul says this is not how you learned Christ. Michael reminded us that that's some weird language of learning Christ. Normally, you learn about Christ or learn of Christ. How do you learn Christ? What we see is all of us are supposed to be learning Christ, learning from Christ, remembering that we aren't above Him, we aren't before Him. But the aim, the purpose, the direction of all of being a disciple is to learn Christ. That means we try to be like Him. We follow after Him. We try to represent Him to others. We help teach others what He's like. So then, with that, again, picture that we have, we can take this idea, to be a learner, we'll put a little L over those who are now in Christ. To be in Christ is to be a learner. Now, what are some pictures of what it looks like to be a learner? What are some pictures that we see in the Gospels of what it means to be a disciple? I think there's two very potent pictures that Jesus gives us. One is baptism, and one is a yoke. So first one, baptism. We see in John four one. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, "When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John," and then it goes on to talk about how Jesus responded to that. But you can see Jesus was not the only one who was baptizing people. John the Baptist was also baptizing people, and so as Jesus started baptizing people, the, his his notoriety, his fame would begin to spread. But what does baptism signify? In the first century, it it signified a dying to your old ways of living. It signified washing off the old self and then putting on the new self. We see in other places in the New Testament that baptism serves as a a demonstration of the death to ourselves and the new life that we've been given in Christ. So for many religions, for many uh, leaders in the first century, it served as a way of visibly identifying yourself with a new leader. Remember, John the Baptist had quite the following. If Jesus comes and baptizes even more than John the Baptist, then he would start creating quite the following. So baptism today serves the same way it did in the first century, and that is a visible demonstration that you are publicly identifying with Christ and dying to your old ways of living. Which leads to the first question that we have, if you are a disciple of Christ, have you made that decision to publicly identify yourself with Christ, to renounce and die to your former ways and to accept Jesus as your master, as your Lord, as your Savior, to become a more faithful disciple. That's the first, baptism. But the second is a yoke. And this is where this conversation becomes fun. In Matthew eleven twenty-seven through 30 Jesus, here speaking, says, "...all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son." and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, what what Jesus is doing is inviting us into this epic story of cosmic, universal renewal. It doesn't make sense in our minds because it's both the easiest and the most difficult thing you'll ever do. Notice Jesus describes the yoke is easy and light. A yoke is easy and light. It's true because Jesus is pulling with you, but it's still a yoke, which means you actually have to put in all your effort. Now, this gets into the, the age-old debate. Is this God's doing or is this our doing? And the answer is yes. It is 100% our job and it is 100% God's job. See, our work is light and easy compared to trying to accomplish all these things by, by ourselves. But we still have to put in the work if we want to join with God in this epic story that we've been called into. So another way of summarizing some of what we've looked at so far is we are to pursue transformative learning. That is learning that actually changes us. It, it doesn't just stay in the theoretical. It can't just stay in the theoretical. It must lead to transformation and confirmation, conforming into the image of God. Now, the last text I want us to look in in this section is Jesus' last recorded words in Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, "'All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always.'" To the end of the age. Now, I've preached this text before when I candidated, but that was over two years ago, and that was meant to serve as a starting point for what we're now talking about in this series. So, again, these are the last recorded words from Jesus in Matthew's gospel, which mean it's supposed to be the final or lasting thought for us in Matthew's story of Jesus. It's also significant because it's the means God has chosen for Jesus' ministry to continue down until today. So, really brief, briefly, what does this look like? First, we see that it's dependent on Jesus' authority. See, there's no limit anymore to Jesus' sphere of authority. If He's not in control, then, then we shouldn't be obeying Him. We also see, verse nineteen, go. When I preach on this last time, I translated that for us as "as you go." So, like in the Greek, if you would just woodenly translate it over, it'd be going. So as you are going about your life, which means as you are making disciples, this is not supposed to be a, like attack on like an additional thing that you have to do, nor is it meant to be unique, because everyone lives life somewhere. Every single person in this room at some point or some point in the future is going to work at a job, which as you are going about your job, you're supposed to be making disciples. Most of us in this house live somewhere, have a house somewhere. You're living in that house. You are supposed to be using that house as an opportunity to be making disciples. Many of you have hobbies, interests that you pursue outside of your job and your house. Those hobbies were given to you by God so that you, as you're pursuing those hobbies, can make disciples. Many of you have a favorite restaurant. Some people in this room even have a favorite restaurant of Applebee's, which is just embarrassing. But, sorry, Jared but even having a favorite restaurant is an opportunity for you as you go to your favorite restaurant to look for opportunities to be making disciples. But Jesus also goes on as we go about our lives. He tells us how we make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Baptizing is meant to serve as the entry point, whereas teaching is the continual training. Another way we could say this, that I have summarized it for us, is making and maturing disciples of Jesus. And the way that you know this is working is the outworking of this. Verse 20, to observe all that I have commanded you, everything Jesus commanded. So how are you doing at obeying everything Jesus commanded us? Let's start with a basic one. Who here, quick show of hands, loves God completely with everything they have? Completely, like never sinning? Okay, uh, let's do the second one. How many of you perfectly love your neighbor just like you love yourself? Like those are the two that Jesus says are the most important commands in all, and summarize all of the Bible. If we can't do those, that, then what hope do we have of observing everything that Jesus commanded? Now, with this, this emphasis that I, I'm, I'm talking about here, of, of making disciples, of Jesus' last words being to continue going and making disciples, you'd think this would be a prevalent theme throughout the rest of the New Testament, right? Like you should see this idea of, of making more disciples just come up again and again and again. The funny thing is, the last time the word disciple appears in the New Testament is Acts 21.16, which means we have a, like a third of the Bible left before uh, disciples ever mentioned again. But with what we've talked about, with a disciple being a learner then we're actually going to see it come up all, all over. And even in, like, Acts 21.16 is a funny one. It says, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. That's all it says. So it's not even talking about this process of discipling. It just disappears. Like, so am I making a mountain out of a molehill? Or are we talking about something that should be ignored or forgotten? Do you think maybe the early disciples forgot about it and then, like, moved on, like, we got the discipleship thing, now we're going to move on to bigger and better things and do the real work of ministry? See, if, if we go back and, and think about a disciple being someone who is learning, then it's going to appear all over the New Testament. So let's look at a few. First, Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the, doc- to the doctrine that you have been taught or you have learned. So there we see disciples coming up. So avoid people like this. 1 Corinthians 14, 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may Learn and be encouraged. Philippians 4 it comes up twice. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So that is transformative learning. Live these things out, and the God of peace will be with you. Two verses later, Paul talking about himself, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We'll go on. Colossians 1, 5 and 7, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since today you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. We'll go on to Ephesians, passage that we studied together. Oh, too far. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, Ephesians 4, they have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. He goes on to talk about all those things we're supposed to put off and put on. Titus 3.14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. That's the last one I've got for you. Brief summary of what it means to be a learner or a disciple throughout the New Testament. So looking at at some of these ideas, we've seen that this, this learning needs to be a regular part of what we're doing. Those who have moved, if we go back to that arrow idea, those who have moved from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son are going to be continually learning. So how do we then define what a disciple is? If you go with the Vine Project definition, they say it is a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in repentance and faith a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in repentance and faith. Another book I read this week said, a disciple is someone who learns the way of Jesus, which is both cognitive and behavioral, knowing and doing. So I tried to take a bunch of different definitions and came up with, it is a redeemed sinner learning Christ by increasing worship of God through every area of your life. Now, I think a good uh, summary or a good test that you can do to see how you're doing at being a redeemed sinner who is learning Christ by increasing worship through every area of your life is to go read Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what's left out of, of a list like this? Well, nothing. Because the fruit of the Spirit is meant to be demonstrated in every circumstance, in every single area of our lives. Think about that. Every situation that you come into, what you are supposed to be demonstrating is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. In every encounter you have, that is what you are supposed to be demonstrating. But the key to this is someone who is learning. I one time heard someone say that the road to Christian maturity is paved with Christian books. See, you can't grow in learning of Christ, you can't grow in learning Christ unless you're reading about Him. But you also can't do this individually. That is insufficient because as we'll see next as we transition from disciple to discipleship is this is meant to be a community endeavor. The Vine Project says it this way, whereas we often think of learning in terms of our own personal growth and advancement of becoming a better me in some way, to learn Christ is to be increasingly focused on others rather than ourselves. James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, actually talks about this in James one twenty two. We as believers need to be hearers and doers. It's not enough just to think right, you also need to live right, which is where this learning must also be transformative. So, we've seen a disciple as someone, a redeemed sinner, learning Christ by increasing worship of God through every area of your life. Then we'll ask, what is discipleship? So, moving on to the next step, to be a disciple is to be a learner, so discipleship is helping people become better learners. Now, there's all sorts of books you can read on discipleship which seem to have uh, different definitions, different emphases, different focuses on what discipleship is supposed to be and look like. We'll look at a few of them. So, first, while listening to Dr. Hendricks speak, I sense that discipleship might be something I could do, unlike more public types of ministry because you didn't have to preach or do anything public. So, if discipleship is learning, is preaching, therefore, or public ministry left out? No. All right, next one. What would happen to the church of Jesus Christ if a majority of those who claim to follow Christ were nurtured to maturity through intimate, accountable relationships centered on the essentials of God's Word? Self-initiating, reproducing disciples of Jesus would be the result. My question for this is if we've looked at learning being the emphasis to the New Testament, where is learning in here? There's relationships, those are important, but where is the focus, where is the learning, where we are learning to become more like Christ? Another one, this is a book that I used to enjoy until I read this quote in here. Discipleship is all about living life together rather than just one structured meeting per week. Now again, there's an element to this that is true, but does it downplay or or undermine the significance of us actually meeting together, as Scripture does command us to do? Another one. Many churches have used various types of small groups as part of their discipleship strategy. You can call them home groups, life groups, fellowship groups, community groups, etc. Is small groups the sum total of discipleship? It can't be, because we see we need to continue learning Christ in every facet, every area of our lives. Two more. Mark calls the church, so this is a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, Mark calls the church to abandon its imperialistic dreams on the one hand and its passive non-involvement on the other, and to become for the world what Jesus was for the world. That is what discipleship, following Jesus, really means. My question for this is, can we? Isn't Jesus unique among anyone that ever lived? Like Again, so we ask some questions, how are you loving God perfectly? How are you loving neighbor perfectly? There's one person who did that, Jesus. And this is like, even in in talking about some of the discipleship stuff, there's a phrase that will often come up. We are commanded to do incarnational ministry. I hate that phrase. The incarnation is referring to a one-time event, to one specific person, and none of us can perfectly live out the second person of the Godhead. That's why we have discipleship. That's why we need to grow as disciples, because we can't be everything that Jesus has called and commanded us to be. Now, the last one. We need more of the engine that Jesus used to change the world, the engine He instructs us to use. This engine will not create perfect churches, but it will create effective churches. It's relational discipleship. Again, good start. Like that, it, it's talking about things that are helpful and true. We throw all these things in a, in a blender together, what do we come up with? I still haven't seen learner appear on any of these definitions yet, which means we need to look a little beyond this. So, when I think of discipleship, what I'm thinking of is anything that we do that helps someone take one step closer to God in their life, which means helping someone better worship God with everything that they do. John Piper famously wrote a book a number of years ago where the the opening line to the book was, missions exists because worship doesn't. But you can take that into everything the church does. Discipleship exists because worship doesn't. So what we need to do is find every area in our life to use it as an opportunity to worship God with everything that we have. And this demands in our lives both making and maturing disciples as well as doing and being disciples. I at times worry that we have segmented discipleship as a tack-on only for the mature Christians, when the reality is discipleship is inherent to the Christian faith. So to practice discipleship is to be a Christian. But There are good and bad ways to do this. We'll look at that idea more fully next week as there is something that needs to be the foundation of all of our discipleship, which, spoiler alert, it's God's Word. This means that discipleship can even take place with unbelievers, where we are living in a unique way. We ask them unique questions about their lives. We encourage them to bring their lives one step closer to Christ. Now remember, this cannot be done alone. It takes others to teach and demonstrate to you, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, a more excellent way. And anyone who is married can testify to this reality, can't you? You can't hide your sin anymore. You are convinced that you are the least selfish person in the world until you find out that you don't do so good at cleaning up your socks. And then when you have kids, it just exacerbates even further because your kids will start imitating those sinful things and then call you on the negative traits that they see in you. Our kids right now are are strongly emphasizing kindness versus unkindness. It's a great thing to learn. I'm really grateful that they're doing it. It's not as great when in the middle of disciplining, they are telling you, you are being unkind. (laughs) But it's okay because it's an opportunity for us to disciple them. Now, examples of, of what this looks like abound in the New Testament. You can pretty much pick any of the epistles in the New Testament and find an example of this, but I want to take some time to look at one because I, I think it, it's just important and, and was reminded to me recently by a pastor friend of mine of how we should be engaging with each other. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 13 to 22. If you have your, uh, the Pew Bible, it's on page 574. There's a lot of commands and exhortations that Paul's giving here. He's wrapping up the end of his letter to the Thessalonians. He's been trying to encourage and support them, and then he goes, transitions on to how they can support and encourage each other. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 13 to 22, he says, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now look at all these various commands that Paul gives to his people. So overguarding all of these things is we need to be at peace with each other. Now we've seen that again through the book of Ephesians. Peace with each other only comes about because of peace we have with God. And he goes on. Anyone who is in this list, we have a way to approach them. We urge you, uh, just so you know, that you is plural. So it's like if we're not from the South, but in the South they say y'all. Like we in the North, like, what is it, you guys? I I had a Texan friend who made fun of us for that. He's like, just say y'all, because you're meaning the same thing. Anyway, we urge y'all, or we urge you guys, brothers, here's what we're supposed to do. Anyone who's idle, we're supposed to admonish. So anyone who is not working hard, we admonish them. We call them out. We call them to a more excellent way. If anyone's faint-hearted, we encourage them. There are people in this room who are faint-hearted, which is why we gather together and we're supposed to encourage them. Those who are weak, who are struggling, who don't feel like they can make it any further, we come along and we help them. And anyone who's not on this list, so anyone who's not idle, anyone who's not faint-hearted, anyone who's not weak, we'll be patient with them. This is how we are commanded to live with each other. Then he goes on, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always, 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 always seek to do good to one another. And if you can't do it to one another, also do it to everyone. No one is left off this list. And then Paul talks about how we pray. We rejoice. We pray without ceasing. We give thanks all the time, no matter what is going on in your life. All that, all those commands of what we should do before we get to what we should not do, and that is do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Instead, we test everything and we hold fast to anything that is good. A summary of that is abstaining from every form of evil. We do good all the time. Now remember, this, all of these things, all these encouragements, all these exhortations are done in the context of community. This cannot be done alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book on this idea called Life Together where he says the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. That is why we need to speak to each other because I get tired. You get tired. We grow weak. So we need each other to be encouraged and to continue encouraging each other. We need God's Word to be spoken to each other and we need God's the, the church. We need each other to help hold us accountable, which is some of what we'll be looking at together over the coming weeks. But I love the way the Vine Project summarizes all of this discipleship idea with four P's. So they say, it is the persevering proclamation of the Word of God by the people of God in prayerful dependence on the Spirit of God. And they even put it in alliteration for you. So discipleship is proclamation of the Word in multiple ways, which we'll be looking at next week. It is prayerful dependence on the Spirit, which we just saw in 1 Thessalonians together. It is people, that is us, as God's fellow workers. So you think of a a, a place like... uh, Galatians, I don't remember the exact passage, but where uh, Paul is talking about Apollos planted and I watered, but who causes this to growth? God does. We can't force people to grow, but we are called by God to continue speaking God's Word to each other. And then the last thing is the hard part, and that is persevering step by step. So what does that look like practically? A couple brief ideas for us as we wrap up. First, in Matthew 4.19, as Jesus is going, calling His first disciples... He stumbles across two guys who are fishing by the sea, and he says to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What you're supposed to do is take what you're already doing and refocus it toward growth and holiness. So we see Jesus, who took people who were fishermen and made them fishers of men. What is it that you are doing that you can use to actively speak God's Word, speak God's truth to help people take one step closer to Christ? But We also see that we do this because we have been sent and commissioned by God. Apart from Matthew 28, Jesus, at the, at, towards the end of His ministry in, in John's gospel, uh, Jesus comes to them and says, Peace be with you. Again, we see that peace that is only possible because of Jesus. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Do you view your daily life as sent by God? To actively work with God at moving people one step closer to God with all your interactions. Because that's exactly what God has called us to do and be. We are called to be a disciple who pursues discipleship by our daily interactions with each other. Even this week, as as Ross was praying, praying about this just a little bit earlier, Thanksgiving is coming up on Thursday, which is an opportunity for you to be thinking and processing and planning what can you do to intentionally make and mature those that you're interacting with. You may be interacting with unbelieving family this week. Use it as an opportunity to point them, to to shepherd the opportunity that you have to speak the truth of God's Word in in every interaction, and every encounter that you are having. It doesn't have to wait until Thursday. You can do it today. One of the things we're commanded to do throughout Scripture is actually encourage each other. I was reminded of that this week. This is not in my notes, so I'm getting off script here, sorry. Um, Hebrews 10.25, Do not neglect meeting together, which is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I was reminded of that need, like as we speak God's Word to each other, as we encourage each other. The speaker was talking about, the, the, for some reason, the, the uh, author of Hebrews is, is equating meeting together with encouragement. Did you catch that? So, do not neglect meeting together as the habit of some, but encourage each other. So, what we need to do when we gather together is encourage each other. Is anyone in this room feeling over-encouraged right now? <laughs> Like, I don't think there's, there's this huge, huge, uh, uh, lack, of, or a huge yeah, lack of encouragement that's going around. All of us need to be encouraged in, in what we're doing and what God has called us to do and be. But the only way you can do that is by spending time with each other, by right? being involved and invested in God's Word and then speaking God's Word that you're seeing take place to those around you. I was talking to someone else yesterday about, about the need to, like, bring unbelievers into your Christian spaces. So, like, if you're going to have uh, some friends from church over, invite them over and then invite your unbelieving neighbor to come and join you. So they can start to see, what does it look like? Why, why? I've shared this story before. Like our neighbors have gotten to know some of the, our friends from church here because we just invite them over when, when we're doing things. And they told us, everyone we've met through you is so nice. Right. <laughs> we, we just get rid of all the mean people. <laughs> but no, that, like, what we are commanded to do is be encouraging. We're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be gracious. We're supposed to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. What a wonderful witness. What a wonderful opportunity we have to be reminded to disciple any and everyone we come into contact with. So as we do that, let's, let's pray. God, I thank you that this is not completely up to us. I thank you that, that discipleship is possible because of you, because of the truth of your Spirit at work in us, and because of the foundation of planting ourselves in your Word. I pray that as as we continue studying what it means to to be and make disciples of you, that we would be reminded uh, to take every thought captive to you, to take every opportunity captive to you, and to seek to be faithful in in being a visible demonstration of what it means to seek and follow after you with with our entire lives. God, I pray for those of us this week who may be spending time with unbelieving family members, help us to find ways to speak the truth in love, not to demean or belittle or mock but to share graciously what it means to live a life surrendered fully to You. Thank You for the ways that You've worked in us and and the opportunities we have to encourage each other to be more faithful followers of You day by day. God, I think of our our friends, family, our our members who are scattered across the world. I think of Denny, who is is looking to to make disciples in, in a completely different context, and pray You would strengthen him pray that he would be encouraged because of our time together this morning, and I pray that we can continue finding ways that as we have sent people out, we would continue praying for and encouraging them to continue making disciples. God, help us to be faithful until the day that you call us home. Help us to not grow weary in doing good, but that we would seek to do and be zealous to do good works to everyone we come into contact with. Pray all these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.